welcome to Carceral Studies Conversations, a series that seeks to understand and illuminate the carceral state's past and present so as to deconstruct these complex systems that structure society and perpetuate harm. I am recording from the traditional lands of the Cato Nation and the Wichita and affiliated tribes, which was also part of the Muscogee Creek and Seminole Nations. My guest is recording from the territories of the Utes and Arapaho people. My guest, who I'm very, very excited to be speaking with today, is Jessica Ordaz, who is an assistant professor of ethnic studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. Her research focuses on Chicanx Latinx history, U.S.-Mexico border studies, radical social movements, migration and migrant politics, the carceral state, and the detention and deportation regime. Her first book, recently published with the University of North Carolina Press, is The Shadow of El Centro, a history of migrant incarceration and solidarity, which explores the rise and transformation of migrant detention since World War II. Thank you so much for being with us today, Professor Ordaz. Yes, I'm so excited to be speaking with you today, Alex. Good, good. So let's let's jump in with a big question, which you thought quite a bit about, um, and you write about the detention and deportation regime. What is that? What does that mean? <laughs> yes, so it's a term that I've sort of compiled from other scholars. So I'll start by saying that in 2006, uh, scholar Dylan Rodriguez actually started to write about a prison regime that he defines as a dynamic state-mediated practice that includes domination and control as opposed to thinking about prisons in a more abstract or, or inherent way. And then in 2010, Nicholas de Genova furthered this concept by writing about the deportation regime in his book, Deportation Regime, um, which came out in 2010, and talked about the deportation apparatus also as inherently violent. And so what I did when I started writing this book is, you know, really thought that the detention regime was a term I wanted to use, but I really talk about detention. And so I added detention to his deportation regime. And, and hence, we have the detention and deportation regime, which in essence, highlights the intentional violence that is um, really throughout the entire process of immigration enforcement. Yeah, I, th I think that note about the intentional violence is really important to the story. Um, so how is this process of detention, the process of immigration, detention, and deportation marked uh, by violence? Yeah, so the entire system, starting with migration, a lot of times people flee civil wars, dictatorships, poverty, especially when we're talking about the Americas, Latin America. And it's this violence that's shaped by American empire. And so... Migration is absolutely influenced by violence. And then detention, I argue that its very function is to be punitive, is to be instructive, is to be violent. So the entire process of being incarcerated is a violent one, both physically and psychologically for the people uh, incarcerated. And this includes anything from solitary confinement to name calling um, and just the overall conditions. And then in terms of deportation, this is where we think, you know, at least according to ICE, like that process is over, but it really isn't. It just continues in the sense that even just in being transported 
from the United States to say in this example, Mexico on a bus, um, it's very violent. Oftentimes migrants don't receive any water or food. There's overcrowding. So these like moving carceral spaces that continue even in the process of deportation. And then in like interviewing and speaking with a lot of deportees, I have found that a lot of them suffer from severe mental health issues. A lot of them try to commit suicide and a lot of them are murdered because they're basically deported to places they attempted to flee for a reason. And oftentimes that stems from a violent um, fear, which then becomes true, unfortunately, in a lot of cases. And so the entire cycle is one of violence. Yeah, it's interesting to see these different forms of violence play out where part of it is fear and where, where folks are coming from, but also part of it seems to be written into sort of the legal process or the policy of uh, detention and deportation. Absolutely. Yes. And so one of the examples that I, I like to highlight, because I think it's just so clear, is that of Operation Wetback. And so this policy passed in 1994 during the Clinton administration for folks who are unfamiliar with it. But basically, the federal government wanted to make laws that use deterrence, um, even if it meant deterrence by death, to manage migration. And so after this policy was implemented, the rates of migrants trying to cross into the United States along the US-Mexico border, specifically the San Diego region, increased dramatically, right? So much so that scholars write about these mass graves that then exist um, along the border. And so that's, I think, a really great example of how, like literally the law, the intention of it is deterrence. And I've seen um, writings from policymakers that say, even if this results in death, right, then it's a successful law. So quite literally, um, violence to the point of death. Yeah, and that's, that's something amazing, amazing in the worst of senses to think about. And it's an interesting juxtaposition you make that on one hand, you have this deterrence of the effect of whatever social issues are going on where people come from. But then you also mentioned a second ago that a lot of people are fleeing the results of American empire, of um, poor social conditions, that, that there's not really this, in this law, there's not a dealing with root social issues. Yeah, and this has continued for decades, right? So the classic example might be the 1980s and a lot of Central American migrants. But this is a conversation we're still having today in 2021. And so that historical amnesia, um, in some moments, uh, intentional and others unintentional because of this historical amnesia is is is, is frustrating as a historian. <laughs> Certainly. Yeah, that's frustrating. So let, let's talk about, I want to put this this detention regime in the longer context. I mean, of so we don't have that historical amnesia. Where, where does the detention regime come from? Why does it come? What carceral or ideological precedence is it built upon? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say that there's a lot of components to the detention and deportation regime, anything from the criminalization of migrants, which happens in different forms, actual immigration laws and policing, as well as anti-immigrant rhetoric. And so all of these different 
uh, processes are working together to justify the incarceration and deportation of migrants. But if we take a step back and think uh, policing more broadly, the U.S. has been obsessed with confinement, with punishment, with exclusion since the very founding of the republic, really, right? In plantations, in prison camps, in reservations, in penitentiaries, of course, in different ways, but definitely um, examples of, of carcerality. And so caging and punishment were developed in this process of white settler colonialism, as well as enslavement. And then if we want to be more specific in thinking about the precedence of deportation itself, I think that the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act is a really good example or starting point where um, the United States is much more interested in exclusion and deportation and in the idea of racializing migrants as not being able to be assimilated, therefore not belonging in, in the nation. Another example that I'll briefly mention is, is the apparatus of, of detention itself um, and the formation of the Border Patrol in 1924. I, I really like to talk about this date with my students because a lot of them either assume that the Border Patrol is very new and they think about ICE or they assume that it's existed forever, right? Um, and so I think that marking that date is important here in, in the buildup of the apparatus to actually legally um, have the means to police migration. Yeah, absolutely. And I, wa I want to talk about that buildup of migration. I think it's important, again, to, to talk about that. I love that you started or noted the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act because it's so important that it's this law that makes an entire race of people important, that at the heart of its logic is racism or yeah. white supremacy. Absolutely. So, in but in terms of the buildup of the, the deportation regime, you your work starts in the post-war era, post-World War II era. What is happening at that point? Why is that so important in a change in uh, in the, the border patrol system. Yeah. So the, the beginning of my book starts actually <laughs> by not talking about the one camp that I historicized, the El Centro Immigration Detention Camp. And so I, I start there in the introduction and then I say, wait, we really, really need to talk about internment. And so even before the start of World War II, you had um, German inter internees. Well, the start, I should, sorry, I should back up. <laughs> so World War II was taking place, but the United States was not involved quite yet. So even in this moment, um, Germans are incarcerated in a place called Fort Stanton in, excuse me, <coughs> in Nuevo Mexico, in New Mexico. And um what I do is I compare the treatment of these migrants, even once the U.S. enters World War II. And I found two things. One, their treatment is radically different than how um, Mexican migrants will be treated in El Centro in 1945. But also that war really is important, right? Ideas of national security, like the very barracks that the Germans are held in are like uh, war barracks, right, that are used um, by the Department of War, uh, surveillances and technologies that are used in war become increasingly common. So like the use of DDT, for example, that's very much a result of war, um, is then seen uh, in, in the El Centro camp. And so I really found that the 1940s was this pivotal moment 
because of this um, history with internment, both of Germans, but also Japanese Americans, to set the, the framework for what different immigration camps will look like. And I will say the one in El Centro is very early on, right? Of course, we have Angel Island, Ellis Island, but in terms of camps that are very specific, especially for Mexican migrants along the U.S.-Mexico border. And Centro is one of the first ones. We don't see massive numbers until the 1980s. And so it really allowed me to trace the trajectory of this camp in a, in a, war, in a context of, of post-World War II. Yeah, absolutely. So why El, El Centro, which is in California's Imperial Valley? Yes. Why there? Why was the camp placed there? Why so early? Um, and how did the community react um, if it did to the building of this camp? Yeah. Um, okay. So the first part, there's several reasons that the government states in correspondence. I don't know, you know, how much weight they put on any one of these reasons or if there are others. But from what I found, El Centro was an ideal place because they were able to purchase very cheap land in the 1940s. And so that was appealing. But it's also super close to the U.S.-Mexico border. And so the whole function, the purpose of this one camp was to detain unauthorized Mexican migrant men. So if you have such a narrow demographic who you want to hold, it made sense that it's then so close to the border. Um, So those were two of the reasons. And because it's close to the railroad tracks, you also have an influx of Mexican migrants. And then the Bracero program, um, which was active from the 1940s to the 1960s, is also one of the main reasons for the creation of this camp in 1945, because even though the goal of the Bracero program, in theory, was to use Mexican nationals as contracted labor, what ended up happening, and you know, scholars have debated whether this was intentional or unintentional, but this actually spurred unauthorized migration because there was only so many contracts that could be given out to Mexican migrants, and yet they were, you know, being recruited and they were hearing from their friends and their family members, like, oh, there's all these jobs in the United States, and you know, this this could be beneficial to us. Um, and so you have an influx of migrants. You also have a lot of residents once they're in the United States realize the limitations of what a lot of scholars have called like slave-like conditions. And so a lot of them leave the Brasero program but continue to live in the United States as unauthorized workers. So just very generally, you have a large influx of unauthorized migrants along the border and in the central becomes a key place to hold them and process them and then deport them because they are no longer um, protected with their contracts, right? They're now unauthorized workers. Uh, But to answer your second question about community responses in the 1940s. So I can answer this in terms of the local elite, the local INS border uh, patrol inspectors, as well as the agricultural growers. They were very fond of the detention center because I argue, based on the research that I conducted, that they used the facility not only as a place to hold migrants and then deport them, but in fact, almost like a holding pen for a system of forced labor because 
not only would these Mexican migrant men work throughout the camp, which maybe is not surprising, but what was surprising is that they would often take him outside of the camp to work in their private homes, in their fields, in their ranches. And their only wage was either like second rations of food or they would delay their deportation, which neither of those are a wage. Um, and so that was one way in which they reacted. They thought, oh, this this could actually serve, um, the center can serve to our, our benefit in a way that perhaps they hadn't thought of before. Interesting. Yeah, it, 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 that's so interesting because, I mean, it's in an agricultural region. You mentioned the cheap land and the these elites in the area who obviously have this vested interest in growing. What I find so interesting is this is in the 1940s and we have a rich wealth of literature on prison labor where, where I mean, to traditional penitentiaries, I mean, Alex Lichtenstein writes about this, Henry Kammerling, uh, Douglas Blackman, among many others, where largely African-American incarcerated people are performing the same labor for wardens and community members. Did you see any, any difference in this labor program then, or any correspondence of the people running the camps between other prison systems or carceral knowledges. And then I guess, I guess the, the third follow-up to not throw too many questions at you at once, um, is this racialization of migrant labor different than racialization of black labor um, elsewhere in the country? Yes, all good questions. So I didn't find any correspondence or sources as to what you refer um, mostly, and we haven't talked about this, finding sources at all <laughs> on this topic was so challenging. Um, and it even led me to places like as far as Mexico City, where some of those files were not classified or working documents like they were in the United States. And so no, that was definitely on my mind. And I allude to a lot of what you just said, in terms of other forms of incarcerated labor. And I, I mean, there's so many sim similarities to like convict labor and convict leasing. And so the only thing I mentioned in the book is that like clearly like there's these legacies of, of forced labor and incarceration that makes this system seem almost like common sense and I say that because what I did come across was some writings from those local patrol inspectors where um, there was a there was an agent who like wrote to the federal government and was actually very embarrassed and ashamed and was like, what is going on? Like, this is unacceptable. And they responded, the local officials by saying like, well, one, we don't have the financial resources to not do this. <laughs> so they kind of just, you know, put it back on the INS and, and also advocated then to get more money, which we know today they have plenty. <laughs> um, but also they argued that like they, they've, they had no qualms, like they didn't understand like what the issue was. And so the way I interpret that is like, well, why would they, why would they in like this moment where they're seeing it in so many other ways, right? Um, like you mentioned. And so it almost seemed to them like common sense, like, well, of course, like, th this is mutually beneficial um, to us in the sense that we're doing our job, we're keeping them incarcerated, but they're also helping out. Um, and, and they even referred to this as like, it benefits the incarcerated demographic because we're, they're learning a skill <laughs> and they're not bored and they might get extra food. And so that was how they justified this system. But other than that, there wasn't too much 
else, like comparing other labor regimes. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I see a lot of parallels to the racialization of incarcerated Black populations throughout time. And there's like some um, references I make throughout. Um, but I think the biggest like connection that I made is the concept of fugitivity. So when I start to talk about resistance and escape and flight as fugitivity, that's definitely pulling from really fantastic black scholars who have written about, you know, other moments in time and how escape is a form of survival and resistance. And so I think that's one of the biggest connections I would say between my focus on migrant incarceration and um, some of this larger, more, more broad work. That's really interesting to see the resistance as one of these, one of these overlaps, because a lot of scholars have said that sort of learned from experience. That's a pragmatic response. So how did uh, migrants and their allies resist this state violence? Yeah, yeah. So in the 1940s, every opportunity they got, migrants would literally try to leave, right? Whether it was by being very strategic and waiting it, waiting for it to rain so that the dirt would soften and they could crawl under the fence. And, you know, this was the 1940s. So the fence would have been a lot more makeshift than it is today. And so they were able to do that and, and escape that way. Some of them would wait um, until they were out from the out from the camp in a quote unquote work party, <laughs> um, which is what the INS called it at the time. And they would dart for the border because they are so close to the border. And so and I, ironically, they're then able to use this to their advantage. And in most of the cases, they successfully escaped because, you know, the surveillance and the technologies were not what they are today. And, and the camp was new in the 1940s and the guards were still trying to figure out how to, you know, police and enforce their power. And they quickly learned. So like shortly within a few years, they write about like increasing surveillance, increasing lighting, increasing the number of guards. And they write about like the threat of migrants and, and they tell the guards like, they're devious, you better be careful. Like they will try to run away and they were, um, but there's a reason for that, right? They did not wanna participate in the system of forced labor, which to me is so obvious. And yet in the correspondence that I, I found, <laughs> the INS officials, I don't know how like perplexed they actually were or if they're just writing about it in this way, but they're like, we don't understand where they keep escaping. Like clearly we just need to fortify the fence as opposed to thinking about like, well, what conditions are they being held under? Like, why would they want to escape? Um, more so than in other instances, of course, you know, who wants to be incarcerated, but. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. So, so you obviously trace this camp, the single camp over a long period of time. Was the response almost to this politics of escape or this fugitivity, was the response always fortify more surveillance, more security? Or was there ever any, even an inkling of analysis of the conditions that prompted this resistance? No, the, the correspondence is fascinating to look at because later on in the 1970s, there's a bit more mention of escape. And so I will say because it was hard to access documents for the entire time period. And I should say, because I don't think I've mentioned for listeners. So the period that the facility is open is 1945 to 2014. 
And so there's a lot about, there's a lot of discussion about escape in the forties and fifties, and then it kind of dies down. And there's a few mentions, mentions of it again in the 1970s. But at this point, it's from like the INS, um, the INS, uh, like l- larger correspondence. So not specific to this camp, but just generally speaking of, of all facilities. And they're basically saying like, you know, make sure that the vents are surveilled and that there's not like these like smaller ways of escaping as opposed to like the obvious, like, you know, fence because they're more fortified. But they also say like, oh, this new generation of migrants, like they're so awful. Whereas before Mexican migrants were so docile. And I'm like, well, that's just another example of historical amnesia. Like they don't know their own history, first of all, which I definitely found in speaking to the ICE agents and ICE archivists. Like they do not know their own history. <laughs> but and, this, and, then, and then this happens, right? Like they don't realize like, oh, they've been dealing with escapes decades prior. That's so interesting. Um, so have in, in all of these escapes, resistance, I mean, obviously there's these pragmatic escapes or, or sort of material um, mitigation of conditions, but is there, does there also develop a politics or an ideology that contests the racialization of criminality or subversiveness or racialized labor? Yeah. So later on, towards the end of the book, when I get into the period of the 1980s, I look at examples of resistance by centering on the hunger strike, which was very common in the 1980s, I would say even today. But I just found so many examples, even just from this one facility of migrants who, you know, it's a different example of resistance where they're literally like, planning out a hunger strike and they're really speaking to one another. And I call this an example of transnational migrant politics because at this time, so many of the migrants incarcerated in El Centro come from one part or another of Latin America. Um, The rates of Central American asylum seekers increase. And so a lot of these men have come from places where they're literally like undergoing revolutions and they're like very active leftists who come with their own set of experiences and politics when they are all incarcerated in this space. And so that comes through and it's, it's fascinating because I write about a hunger strike that took place in 1985 and the immigration agents like tried to delegitimize de- 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 not only the strike, but like their identities and their politics by saying like, oh, they like they weren't the ones that organized it. Like clearly it was just like the immigration lawyers who were like, yeah, like you're not going to get out, like just protest and like make waves. And like, that's so <laughs> like limiting and problematic. Like they're literally coming from places that are at war. A lot of them are guerrilleros. They have very real critiques of American empire. And so, of course, you know, they're now incarcerated in in these small spaces. They're going to have a lot to say and an organizing experience. And so I really like to emphasize that transnational component and really give them agency and saying like, well, of course, like their lawyer might have played a part, might have given them guidance, but at the end of the day, like they have their own politics and they're exerting that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really important point that not only are they doing this to sort of protest conditions, but they come from this deep tradition of 
radical revolutionary. Many come from this this tradition yeah. of radical revolutionary politics. So I want to fast forward a bit. Um, the camp closes in 2014. Um, why does the camp close then? And sort of what's the state of migrant detention in this regime um, in the 21st century? Yeah. So I also say it closes, but I use that term loosely because what happens is the facility itself, the doors are closed, the migrants are transferred, and there's no technically no operation in El Centro any longer. But what happens is um, in 2014, ICE officials basically open a fully privatized, co-ed, much larger facility in Calexico, which is literally within miles of El Centro. So, you know, it's closed slash relocated. <laughs> um, and so it's very intentional, right? Like El Centro was only ever partially privatized, like the guards and the food and transportation were, but it was still federally owned, whereas the new facility, um, the Imperial Regional Facility, is completely privatized. It holds so many more people and yet employs fewer guards. And that's like strategic to cut costs. But then the way the architecture is structured is very, very much to help with surveillance so that the architecture is doing the policing and you don't have to rely on as many guards. Um, and so that answers <laughs> what happens to El Centro in 2014. In terms of our current moment, I mean, something that I really like to highlight as a takeaway from the book is that in terms of immigration, but even more specifically in terms of detention centers, immigration detention centers, we're dealing with a bipartisan issue. Like, regardless of what administration was in power from the 40s until the present, based on my research, it's always been incredibly violent and punitive. And that doesn't change regardless um, of who's in power. And so today, 2021, then it's no surprise that we are, you know, still deporting people in mass numbers and holding them in awful conditions. And that now we've really in included that and extended that to children, um, to, to trans folks in just awful conditions. And and I think one of the most important things right now that we're dealing with in terms of an issue inside of detention facilities is lack of access to health care. And I say that not even because, you know, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. That's definitely a huge factor. But even before that, like decade after decade, something I constantly saw in the archive or in people I spoke to and interviewed was you know, I get an Advil whether I have a headache or I'm bleeding and have cancer, which is ridiculous. And that is still true today from what I've seen. Um, and, and yeah, and now we're, you know, dealing with, with COVID. And so detention centers continue to be what I would consider like these death traps um, the rates of people who either commit suicide or who die from medical complications or who are killed is high, even with the rates that we know of. And of course, these are reported by ICE themselves. And so I really suspect this number to be higher. So yes, unfortunately, the violence that I found in 1945 continues into 2021. Wow. Wow. It's interesting listening to that for so many reasons, but largely because as, as I mean, you study these detention camps on this podcast before we've taught a lot, talked many times about sort of prison facilities and different manifestations of the carceral state. 
and there's just everything you're saying has so much overlap that violence is bipartisan that the the pandemic hasn't changed health conditions but it's revealed and exacerbated these poor conditions that kill people um, and perpetuate violence and it's just interesting to see how enmeshed one arm of the carceral state is with all of its others absolutely yes and on that that note i want to i want to end the conversation with my usual question which hopefully can be a little bit more positive or give us a little bit of something positive to take away um what gives you hope today yeah so i would definitely say all of the organizations and all the people that work toward abolition abolition more broadly of the carceral state but specifically like abolish eyes focuses on detention centers and, you know, I would argue it's not even just about ICE, but the entire <laughs> detention and deportation regime, which has existed much, you know, longer than ICE has. But yes, abolish ICE, abolitionist movements, all of the protesters and, and hunger strikers themselves who are detained, I think, gives me hope. Um, yeah. So thank you. Thank you so much for those questions. Good. Yeah, I like the ending of that too, because it's important to remember the folks on the inside who are inside the system um, that also have the politics and are fighting for for more libertary libertar liberationist world. Yes. Um, there's the word. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. This was really interesting um, and has given me a lot to continue to think about um, and work towards. Yeah. Thank you so much, Alex. Great. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Tune in to our next episode. Thank you.